Section 19 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Soul and Body, Part 1. The fountain of creation is the mind of God. Hence there is a light and odour of eternity even about the most perishable of creatures, or the most effervescent of material phenomena. They reveal God, they are emanations of his wisdom and disclosures of his beauty. They are his works of art, his peculiar thoughts, his music and his poems. There is nothing in creation which does not bring something of his along with it, nothing which a student of God would not recognize for his by the fashion of it, independent of his knowledge that all things are from God. A single tree is a divine poem. It is unimaginable to any creature to whom the model has not been shown. It is a many-sided wonder, having a deep science in it as well as a deep fountain of beauty. Yet no two trees, even of the same kind, are alike in the interlacing of their branches, the arrangement of their foliage, or their position with regard to the light of the sun, whose beams play silent music on its rising or depressed boughs, and amidst its quivering leaves, as fingers play upon the keys. Yet trees are but one class, an inferior and subordinate class, among the countless poems which form the harmonious unity of creation. When we rise, therefore, through the rational world into the world of grace, still more complete and awe-inspiring are the creatures of God, regarded as manifestations of his invisible beauty, and the literally infinite varieties of his simple unity." but it is the lowest creatures which bring most home to us that all creatures have a real dignity and a significance which entitles them to reverence, simply as being the creatures of God, as having his mark upon them and savouring of his fragrance, which is as well known to our spiritual senses as the odour of that flower on earth which we may happen most of all to love. It is but one proof of the consistency of the Scotus theology that the same school, which gives so dignified a place to creation in its philosophy, should also differ from all other schools in treating the beauty of God as a separate divine attribute in itself. A beauty-haunted mind, such as the minds of poets are, sees the wisdom and the power, the justice and the mercy of God, all the more clearly in creation, because it sees them all in the light of God's beauty. For beauty is something more than either wisdom or power, it is something additional to them, the luster which makes them plain, as the sun makes plain the separate crags of the distant mountain, which in the shade appear to be one smooth and purple mass. A thing might conceivably be wise, yet not beautiful, teeming with evidences of power, yet repulsive because disproportionate or inharmonious. But all things in nature and grace are beautiful as well as wise, beautiful as well as powerful, and they are beautiful because the beauty of God clings to them in virtue of their origin, and to the very last there is something worshipful in the least of them, because that clinging beauty never altogether leaves them. From these considerations we gain a view of creation which, in these days, it is of great importance to keep before us. The battlefields of the world change with the history of nations. So is it in the history of intellect. It can hardly be doubted that the battlefield of faith and unbelief is moving from the incarnation to the mystery of creation from the divinity of our Lord to the attributes of God. It is true that faith and unbelief are always fighting at all their points of contact, but the thick of the battle now is amidst the facts and difficulties of creation. 
Hence, a true view of creatures and their significance is of the greatest consequence, as well that we may avoid unintelligently defending what we are not bound to defend, and what may turn out at last to have all along been indefensible, as that we may know better how to defend what otherwise our ignorance might betray. No erudite theologian will refuse to admit that his science owes more to Aristotle, and even to Plato, than it has suffered from them though he will not be backward to acknowledge that the influence of those two mighty heathens has not been an unmixed benefit. So, in the present circumstances of the world, and looking at theology as the science upon which the practical conversion of souls is based, it seems as if the physical sciences were the natural allies of theology, and a profound study of them an essential part of a theological education. They are of far greater importance now than metaphysics or psychology, and have connected themselves with a greater number of fundamental questions, while they are also in a state of forwardness and system, which renders them much more capable of being used by the theologian. Perhaps it would not be rash even to prophesy that the fresh start and new development of the mental sciences, to which we must all be anxiously looking forward, are waiting for the further advance of certain of the physical sciences, in whose future discoveries mental science will find another starting point. Hence there are two Christian views of creatures, one belonging to theological speculation, the other, not without an accurate theological account of itself, to practical asceticism. Both views are so true, and at the same time so indispensable, that no devout believer can hold the one to the exclusion of the other, without damaging his devotion as well as making his faith less intelligent. For both views are necessary to holiness, and both are necessary to a just appreciation of doctrine. If we look at creatures in comparison with God himself, we are so struck with their vileness, their nothingness, and their transitoriness that, for the moment, we can see nothing else about them, and all else which is predicated of them seems untrue. In such a comparison as this, creatures are simply passive, but it will happen not unfrequently, through our fault rather than through theirs, that they appear to us as obscuring God and eclipsing him and we are then led to regard them with something like an indignant contempt. Or again, we look at God full of love, and we burn as love will burn, with a desire to make sacrifices for him, and so prove our love, and then creatures present themselves to us as victims, as materials for sacrifice, and for sacrifices in which we ourselves are the sufferers, rather than the creatures which we offer, and it is by this process that we gain our entrance into the wide fields of voluntary mortification." Another while our pity takes the shape of self-distrust, and we forbear to use creatures even where we may lawfully use them, because our experience of ourselves teaches us that such a use unmans us, or, in our particular case, is likely to run into indulgence. Out of a combination of these views proceeds asceticism. It is therefore founded not so much in a disesteem of creatures as in a homage to their attractiveness, a homage prompted by the generosity of our love of God, or wrung from us by an exceeding fear of ourselves, or stimulated by the generous spirit of uncommanded sacrifice. What more honourable office can creatures fill than to supply us with a means of serving God by a voluntary or prudential abstinence from the pleasures which they put before us? This ascetical view of creatures is practical to us every day of our lives, and therefore is the most ordinary and common point of view for us. Yet, if we make it too exclusive, we shall someday wake up to a sense of unreality in it, an unreality which is not properly in the view itself, but in our exclusive way of holding it, 
and the consequence of this will be that we shall recoil too far the other way. Experience unfortunately presents us with many instances of this. Men whose fervour began with an immoderate, indiscriminate and exaggerated view of the evil of creatures have actually become worldly, self-indulgent and comfort-loving as soon as they have perceived that their own excessive opinions were untheological and unintellectual. Yet they still use their old language even when their practice has changed. A man who talks loudly against worldliness and yet is wedded to his little personal comforts is harder to convert to a real inward life than the vilest and most habit-ridden sinner among the sons of men. So seldom is fierceness in earnest, even when it believes itself to be most so, for if true earnestness is not sharp with self only, it is so at least with self first of all and most of all. From the other point of view, which is equally true, creatures seem full of dignity and greatness because they are the creatures of God. They are manifestations of his inward life. They are, each and all of them, masterpieces. They have no patterns outside of God himself. They copied no pre-existing models. They are, as was said above, unimaginable by angels or men. All things are unimaginable which have neither predecessors nor analogies. The meanest creature upon earth is mantled with the refulgence of God's beauty, and betokens what we can only call an unspeakable inventiveness, though that is too mean a word to use of creative wisdom. Thus it is that creatures teach us so much of God, and lead us to Him by the very pleadings of their loveliness. They can be even elevated, as in the case of the sacraments, into physical communications of God, and celestial agents in the kingdom of grace. The blessing of the church can surcharge matter with the most wonderful powers and endow it with a sort of supernatural life stretching even beyond the energy of angels. There are no portals like the sacraments for introducing us into the actual realities of human life, but they also open directly into the mysterious movements of the life-giving life of God. Creatures are the materials of our duties, the objects of our sciences, the divine ideas of our arts, the discipline of our affections, and the ministers of pure and intellectual and blameless enjoyment. Who then can think lightly or speak disparagingly of them? Even to God himself we would dare to say that creatures are of importance, else why should he create them? Can anything God does be unimportant, or not be founded in deepest reasons, the least of which are of more consequence than the wars and revolutions of earth? Creation was not a necessity with the Creator, but also it was no mere accidental overflow, no irrepressible surplus of wisdom and power, no simple incident in the eternity of God. It is an action deeply rooted in Him, and separable from Him only by a mental violence, which is practically an untruth. Above all things, it must be remembered that creation was more for His own sake than for ours, as it is the blissful perfection of His nature to seek Himself in all things. It is because self-seeking is the rule of the divine sanctity that it is the negation of all sanctity in a creature. Such a primary seeking of self is in us the practical impiety of trying to change places with God, while a certain orderly love of self is the foundation of our duty and a dim shadowing in our finite natures of the magnificent and adorable self-seeking of God. Hence we venture to say that creatures are, in some inexplicable sense, of importance even to the unbeginning majesty of God. Creation can add nothing to the essential glory of God. We are the creatures of comparisons, because we are finite. 
We can only learn values or estimate truths by comparing them with others. We honor one thing by despising another. We can hardly do justice to a thing without first doing an injustice to something else. Hence it comes to pass that God's accidental glory seems a very slight thing to us compared with the immeasurable ocean and indefinable splendor of his essential glory. Yet, God's accidental glory, and indeed the slightest measure of it, is a greater thing than we can reach even by our conceptions. It is the result of the total of creation, and is its final cause as well. Yet, as we saw just now, it is irreverent to suppose creation to be otherwise than of great moment, even to God himself. His accidental glory is of moment to him, for he cannot pursue what is of no moment. It is indeed infinitely below his essential glory, but it is at the same time infinitely above our powers of measurement. It is something very intimate to him, although it is not intrinsic. In truth, the whole idea of sanctity would be lowered if we lightly esteemed God's accidental glory, for what is all sanctity, even the sanctity of our blessed Lord's human nature, and indeed the whole scheme of redemption, but a contribution to the accidental glory of the Most High. Thus there is a very important sense in which it is true that the worth of creatures to God is greater than their worth to us. His possession of them is great riches even to Him. Everything about God is unfathomable, and it is far beyond the stretch of our minds to conceive what glory and what gladness and what manifold unutterable complacency he may have in his property of creation. The single fact that we ourselves are part of that complacency is a lifelong contentment to our souls. Now, looked at from this point of view, all creation is, as it were, in each separate creature. Each creature is a distinct, unresembled and unequaled disclosure of the divine beauty, and at the same time has such a relation to the whole, most often invisible to us, that it cannot be separated from it, and thus it enters into the rights of the whole, so far as it is God's, even though it may be very low in the graduated scale upon which the hierarchies of creatures are constituted. The bearings of theology regarded as a whole are sure to be misapprehended if this view of creatures is not borne in mind, and there are not a few separate and most important problems in theology to which this view of creatures is the only key. To him who, for his own good or that of others, would speculate upon God, this view of creatures must be as familiar as the other view must be to him in his daily ascetical relations with God himself. Yet it has been not an uncommon thing for men to miss this truth, and then to wonder at the confusion and want of coherence which they detect in their own speculations. Many systems of theology are ragged and ungainly for want of a philosophical view of creatures and creation. While then believing love humbly dares to congratulate God upon any one of his intrinsic perfections, it may also congratulate him upon his absolute possession of creatures, as upon something altogether worthy of his own blessed self. God is indeed rich in his creation. How wonderful are the revelations of science, yet they have hardly got below the surface of things. Rather, it is with the surface of things that they mainly deal. Geology unveils to us but the surface of time, astronomy the surface of space. It has but just opened to us the delicious sense of indeterminate size. More will come of it. The microscope rather enables us to suspect the delicacy of creation than actually makes it visible to us. Chemistry makes us wonder at the character of matter rather than explains its nature. The doctrine of probabilities is but a murmur of laws, speeding on their courses in cycles more vast than we can comprehend. 
Our whole science is but a faint outline of what science will be to the generations which come after us, and the science of the future, what will it be in comparison with the realities of creation as God knows them? What are the kingdoms of matter to the kingdoms of men, and what the kingdoms of men to the gorgeous empire of the many-kinded angels? We must learn to look at creatures from God's point of view, and we have seen that his own perfections involve the importance of creatures in his sight. If we lay this view aside, our theology will detach itself more and more from the mind and movement of the living generations, and so will abdicate that sovereignty over other sciences which is not only its lawful heritage, but is now more than ever within its grasp. Better times are coming, yet these times also are very good. All things considered, the times are miraculously good. Their very darkness is in favour of divine things, and the light of all times is already both the produce and the property of that which is divine amongst us. As theology is the science of all others which takes its stand upon the past, so there is no science which has so many duties to the future. It is a living science, not a lifeless standard. It is a life of itself, not a mere measure of other lives. A limit, certainly, yet a limit enlarging all other limitations, the vast circuit and wide expansion of scientific discovery is an augury of a yet more magnificent theology, one which will enable us to envy less those scholastic glories in whose sunset we are living. The world of mind may have glacial periods analogous to the geological one, but in this respect they differ that they are mostly short and look darker at a distance than they were when they were present. There are nights in the world's history but they are more like eclipses than nights because they are so brief, and moreover there is light enough in their darkness to see with. To a man who lies wakeful, unless he be ill also, the morning always comes suddenly, and earlier than it seemed due. So will it be with that better future of the church and world for which we are all looking somewhat wearily, but quite undoubtingly. Even now does not the future at times dart into our very present with a kind of frightening consolation, and break upon our ears in silent hours of inward listening, like a song of joy, and of such joy as is not the joy of our own day, but a joy surprised with its own exceeding joyfulness. We hear evermore the tread of the future like the footsteps of a benefactor coming to us in our hour of need. The times are good and on no account to be complained of, but... In a wicked world, all good times are always better for what they promise than for what they give. They are times singular and apart, and visibly burdened with a mission, as all good times seem to be to those who live in them and think. We cannot think without hoping. Thought in God's world is hope, because the world is God's. It is a bright gift, for others good as well for our own, when we can understand and welcome the future while it is yet only pushing its fibres under the present, and so, to unloving minds, seems rather like a disturbance than a quiet blessing. But let us return from this digression. We may think for long of the riches of God in the possession of creatures, before we exhaust the thought, and when we have thought it out as far as we can, it will lift us so high that we shall be able to take a more worthy view of his essential glory and his own intrinsic plentitude, a view more worthy than we ever dreamed was possible. A high view of creation does for our idea of God what the true doctrine of our Blessed Lady does. For every measurable height to which it raises her, it raises our appreciation of Him immeasurably. We find God everywhere, in our low thoughts as well as in our high. 
but it is the inevitable result of mean views of creation to give us poor views of God. Yet mean views are tempting because they are easy, and because they dispense our minds from embracing so wide a circle of intelligence. God possesses wonderful creatures in this creation, of which we know something. In other distant, outlying creations he may possess creatures yet more wonderful. But nowhere does he possess any creature which is to compare with the sacred humanity of Jesus, the type and cause of all creation. It is this sacred humanity, the soul and body of the incarnate word, which we are to consider in the present chapter, and the remarks which have paved the way to it will be found not to have been irrelevant to the purpose. All parts of creation influence all other parts. The most distant star tells in some way upon the most lowly wildflower on our insignificant planet, but no part of creation is so vastly influential as the sacred humanity of our blessed Lord, the humanity which is above the angels and adored by them. Take away the church which is built upon it, abrogate the sacraments which are his own personal residence and agency among us, remove him from his mediatorial throne in heaven, abolish the four gospels and the rest of the New Testament, take out of language, literature, and thought all the ideas which are growths or prophecies of the Incarnation, extract out of false religions all the semblances and counterfeits of the Incarnation, take away from sorrow and gladness and strife even the mere material pictures of Jesus and his mother, and would not the extinguishing of the light of the sun be radically a less change, in effect a milder revolution? The sacred humanity is a creature, the uprooting of which would be the unbinding of all creation. End of section 19